I'm Riley. And I'm Ronnie. And this is the Plan to Eat podcast, where we have conversations about meal planning, food, and wellness to help you answer the question, what's for dinner? Hello, and welcome to the Plan to Eat podcast. Today, we have an interview with Kristen Saxena. She is a pediatrician, a mom. She is the host of a podcast called Feeding the Family, and she has a new book coming out called The Happier Meal, How to Enjoy Your Food and Your Kid. So we're, that's what we talked about. We talked about her book, why she wrote it, how she got to the place of like wanting to put a book out there in the world. We talked a lot about getting the family together around the dinner table and having a family meal and the benefits of that. The benefits of eating together as a family are tremendous. I got a ton out of this podcast and I'm really excited for you guys to hear this and learn and hopefully implement some of these things into your life too. Kristen, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. We appreciate you being here. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so let's just talk a little bit about why don't you give everybody your intro of who you are and what you do. Okay, yeah, I, I always feel like that's one of the hardest questions I get anymore is <laughs> I feel like I have kind of like a weird life, but uh, I'll keep it as brief as I can. So I am a, a mom of four from Nebraska. Um, as we talked about earlier, married to my high school sweetheart. I am a pediatrician by training and have always been interested in uh, nutrition and sort of feeding practices and uh, worked, as you can imagine, as a pediatrician that came up a lot uh, in my day-to-day -day work. Um, but in more recent years, I kind of really wanted to get more into the nitty-gritty of feeding kids and feeding people, but wondered if there was something that I could do that could kind of reach more people than you kind of see in an everyday clinic. And so what I've wanted to do for years and years, um, so it's fun to see this kind of finally coming to fruition, is to write a book that was sort of everything that I had learned up to this point um, with sort of my tips and tricks and advice and experience in feeding kids. And finally getting getting that out. So I've got that, um, the Happier Meal coming out. And then as part of that, I also started a podcast, um, mostly because I was already speaking to people sort of in this space. And I felt like there was so much good information I was getting. Uh, I wanted to be able to share all that information as well. So I host a podcast called Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. And we talk a lot about that same subject. We're really excited about your book. Um, Ronnie and I have both had a chance to review some of it. And personally, I love it. <clears throat> I have a two-year-old. And so a lot of it resonated with me, just like a personal level, of course. And so, and I love the subtitle of your book, um, which is how to enjoy your food and your kid. Because <laughs> I think that it can be such a pain point for people um, that meals just become miserable. <laughs> um, yeah. Enjoying so food and your kid. It's a very clever and... Uh, real relatable subtitle <laughs> well thank you so much yeah you know it's it kind of funny even coming to that like I said I've been wanting to write this book uh I want to say for over 10 years but uh the book I have today that I've written is not the same book I would have written 10 years ago so I'm really glad and I think some of that came from just my experience as a parent myself uh is you start to realize like the key is is really just that like making it enjoyable. And that's where you start to see the success coming from the practice of 
family meals and eating together and feeding your kids. Like it has to be enjoyable for everybody in order for it to really work. <laughs> yeah. And just before anybody starts getting uh, squirrely at their house because they think they have to start implementing crazy things into their life, your book gives so many tangible tips and it just makes it feel all uh, just not overwhelming. I think that was one of the biggest things I got out of the book as I was reading it is just you keep it very realistic. <laughs> you're not saying, okay, you're doing this. Now do a complete change and do everything different. It's really tools to start to like change your thinking around it. And then just really simple tips for implementing um, food changes and mealtime changes. And um, just like even thinking about your children's age and where they're at. So it's it's really uh, just a, I don't know, I don't know the right word, but it's just a helpful guidebook. Um, and so that was one thing that I just wanted to tell you that I'm really excited about and that listeners know if they want to get your book, that it's not, you have to change everything about your life. It is, it's really doable and really simple. You don't walk away feeling overwhelmed. You feel empowered. So that's a great thing. Well, thank you so much. That actually um, really means a lot to me. My best friend, actually, she's read my book as well. And, and probably the best compliment I got from her was, you know, you don't make people feel bad about themselves. And she's like, I, that's what I found was the most valuable about it. And that made me really happy. And I think that's because, again, like if you if you read the book, you realize, you know, I I a little bit of a type A person by nature. And I think, you know, as a pediatrician and I knew I thought I knew, you know, exactly what we should be eating. I knew the science, all of these things. And then I had real kids. And I was like, oh, man, like this does not work. And so I think that that's just it. Is I went through the whole process of feeling bad, feeling like I'm failing. And I think it was only through going that, through that process that I was really able to really look at exactly like you said, this isn't about making us feel bad for what we do. You know, it's, it's about meeting ourselves where we, where we are, having some goals, achievable goals, figuring out like what's actually the most important thing I can do that's a benefit to my children and my family and focus on those things. And then, you know, you can build from there, but it, you know, the guilt and I think the shame and the stress that we feel a lot as parents around feeding our kids doesn't really do us any good in the long run. I love that you, you have this little phrase that you say, where you say family first and food second. And that, you know, I think a lot of times when people are thinking about um, you know, sitting around the dinner table or having a family meal. It's so focused on the food and having this like June cleaver kind of a dinner. And in your book, you talk about how it doesn't have to be that way at all. You know, as long the the real important part is getting people to have a dinner together and the connection and the benefits that that bring. So can you talk to us a little bit about some of those benefits about that like family dinners have? Absolutely. That's that's like my favorite topic in the world. So you don't want to bring this up to me at like a dinner party because then <laughs> I'll never stop talking. But uh, yeah, so I think that that was probably what I learned. Like I said, I came from you know this medical background, all about the science. I was super interested in like, what's the very best diet, you know, serving size for people and children of each of each age. And, you know, what I came to realize through through life, through um, helping families and then just through my own research is that the biggest benefits really come from what we call like family meals. So just this practice of eating together. And the way that I like to define a family meal is just, you know, you sitting with your 
family, however you define it, your child, you know, your family can be your auntie, your friends, people define who is their family. You sitting with them, facing each other, sharing the same food without distraction, like phone and TV. It has nothing to do with, you know, like you said, the, the fancy place setting. It doesn't even have to do with necessarily the food that you're eating. Mm-hmm. I like to include that sharing the same food because, you know, as we get into, especially with feeding kids, people fall a lot into the practice of short order cooking. And so I like to get people into this one family, one meal. Um, and certainly their strategy is to meet yourself where you are with that as well. But because I think that that's, if you look at the research, there's a ton of benefits that come just from this practice of having these family meals together. And the benefits really run the gamut. So um, everything from kids doing better in school, kids engaging in um, what we call like less risky behaviors, things like uh, drugs, alcohol, getting in trouble at school, early sexual activity, uh, tobacco use. And then we also, and you know, those are things that have nothing to do really with what you're eating. But you do also see that we'll see, um, you know, less disordered eating, less obesity, actually better nutrition profiles. So kids and adults that eat more family meals tend to have, um, you know, like healthier weights as well as to eat more fruits and vegetables, less fried food. So you tend to eat better, whether you're a child or adult, if you engage in family meals. Also, kids and adults, we tend to see less depression in people who eat uh, more family meals. Kids who eat more family meals tend to be less anxious, uh, more resilient. I mean, it like, it just keeps going on and on and on. And, you know, to me, that was a big eye opener because I think that the family meals, I think something that most people think is good. Like if you ask, it's like, oh, is it good to have family meals? People will say, sure, of course. Um, but I don't think we realize how big it is because when I think about like the other things that make having family meals hard, and I think that that's a lot, you know, the overscheduling that we see in life and families. And I mean, I have four kids and my husband and I are busy people. So I'm the first one to like, I mean, it's, it's juggling schedules. And if I wasn't crazy about family meals, I think my kids would say a little bit, I'm crazy about it. It, it wouldn't happen as often as it does. Yeah. But when I think about it, it's like, you know, your fourth grade basketball practice doesn't carry the same amount of benefits as I know that family meals do, right? So I think when you start to put it in perspective, it helps you say like, this really is something I can't think of honestly anything else that we do that has that far reaching of benefit. And before we get off this topic, I do love to share my very favorite study about family meals is that they they studied um, preschoolers and how often that they ate with their families. And they correlated this with their reading readiness when they got to kindergarten. And they found that the kids who had more family meals, that having more family meals actually correlated better with reading readiness in kindergarten than even being read to by your parents. And of course, like, I I want everyone to read to their children, of course. But I think it's the value of the words they hear and the conversations and the storytelling that happens around the table has so much value even to a child's vocabulary and things of that nature that you don't even realize. And so to think that that would make you even more ready for kindergarten than even, you know, we all try to diligently read to our child, but 
um, if you had to pick one, really, it would be better to just sit down and include them at dinner. That's, that's an amazing study. What do you think it is about this experience that adds so much value to our lives? Um, you know, again, I think a lot of it is just the conversation mm -hmm. and some of it is just the storytelling. So I think this idea of, you know, kids being learning resilient and learning from other people's, you know, successes and failures, mm -hmm. uh, you know, telling the story. That's the other thing, too, is I, I encourage people to have those meals, but then also, you know, try to have those conversations. It's a great time to talk about a time that you know, something went wrong. Sometimes you failed. You know, I love, I think some of those can be some of the best stories you tell your kids because they pick up on those things. Like, okay, you failed. You did something wrong. You fixed it. You're still okay. And you're here today. Right. I mean, I think it's those little lessons that they learn. That's part of it. I think that especially with older kids, it, pro it, it provides a time for like a regular check-in. Um, I think especially with adolescents and teenagers as they start to get more busy. And I always say, you know, little people, little problems, big people, big problems. So, uh, you know, it starts to give you that time where just that little check-in. And I think that that's another big reason that we see like some of those problems not getting as out of hand because when you're checking in regularly with them, you start to see a red flag, you know, something's off about you. I'm going to look into this. You know, I think it just allows those problems not to get so out of hand. So that, mm -hmm. that's just a few examples. I mean, mm -hmm. you can also just see, you know, like a child seeing what a regular meal looks like, developing manners at the table. I mean, there's so much that can come from just that experience. But I think it's just that focused togetherness um, that has such far reaching benefits. Right. One thing you mentioned, I think you actually mentioned pretty briefly in your book, but you said that there was a certain point in time a couple years ago where your grandmother and your kid's great-great-grandmother was eating family dinners with you. And I loved that. I love that for this idea of storytelling and for everybody in the family to get to like hear stories of the life that she lived, but then also, you know, potentially like the mental health benefits for somebody who's older, like spending time around young people and like experiencing like liveliness and a good conversation like that to me sounds so invaluable. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a crazy experience. So my grandmother, she passed away now just about a year ago and she was just shy of her hundredth birthday. And oh for my about gosh. I know. And so for about six months before that, she had moved in with us. And prior to that, she had been living in a nursing home and she just was quickly kind of going downhill. Um, it was during COVID. She had to be very isolated and it was just not very good for her. And that's why we made the decision to. Um, move her in with us. And honestly, when she first got to my house, she was in very rough shape. And I was honestly quite overwhelmed thinking, mm -hmm. you know, what did I get myself into? We have four kids and then grandma who needs a lot of help. But I can't even tell you, I, I like to say, and I know again, like I'm very pro family meals, but we did not do, she improved so substantially just her mental health, her, even her physical health status in those six months that she was here. She was so much more functional, talkative, able to do more and more things independently. And I like to say that that was a lot just because we had family meals together. Because again, we didn't do anything special. She actually came here on hospice. She wasn't getting any 
you know, magical medical treatments, nothing like that. She just sat around the table and was part of a family and sort of enjoyed the social engagement that goes with all that. And I have to say, too, for my kids, you know, I, I also like to say when I first did that, first she first moved in and I was very stressed out and people kept saying, oh, you're making such wonderful memories for your kids. And I was like, please, I, one more person tells me this. I can't handle it. <laughs> but truly, you know, but but truly like the stories that she would tell, I mean, it just I mean, blew my mind. But my kids, you know, she she literally took a horse and buggy to school. You know, wow. they didn't have refrigerators when where when she was small. And so she would tell these stories and my kids, it was like they were talking to like a pioneer, you know, they were like, (laughs) what are you talking about? Like, where did you keep your food? And she's like, oh, down in the cellar. And she would talk all about this. And it was just such an incredible experience, honestly, for for them. And I think that, you know, those are conversations that when are when are my, you know, when's my seven year old going to have opportunities to talk with someone who's 100 years old about their life as a child? Um, but honestly, I, I truly believe that it, the experience bought my grandma six healthy months of, mm-hmm. of life. I imagine that that value add to her life was far greater than you can even, like you saw it, but I think it was probably far greater because she was getting to tell as much as it benefited your children to hear her stories. I feel like it probably benefited her to tell them to someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that that's the other thing is just that social element. I don't think we realize how important that is just for all of our mental health is just that experience. You're right. To be able to to sort out your own stories and tell them and as well as to just like hear about other people's lives. Well, I think it's just to me, it's just a powerful story that, you know, family meals go both ways. You know, it's not just beneficial for kids, but it's beneficial for people of all ages. And I think that that's like a really important thing for people to, for, you know, everybody to remember is that like it's it's beneficial for everybody, no matter if you're seven years old or if you're 97 years old. And so that's really cool. Yeah. You know, you shared a story. I think that your your spouse, um, you guys went on this picnic and it was like a pizza and pop kind of picnic. And you talked about how he was sharing like a. Like a negative or like a failure, uh, something that he did in his day that he wouldn't have deemed like correct. I'm not sure how to how you described it, but I think that you know, hearing that mom and dad aren't perfect and that they have to navigate hard things too, like build some camaraderie. Because, I mean, you said little people, little problems, big people, big problems. And as you grow up, you realize like you can talk to that person and say, "Here's my problem." I can tell my mom or dad because they aren't perfect. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that. And then children tend to have uh, such a gentle or, I don't know, joyful, I don't know what the word is, uh, perspective on things. And they can offer more encouragement than you would even realize that you would get from a little person. But they have just such a happy perspective about life. Like, oh, dad, it'll be fine, you know, (laughs) Um, because you're you can do it. You know, it's like, oh, I can't do it. (laughs) Oh, that is so true. I, that that I think is an excellent point, and maybe that's something that like I should highlight more. Is I think it's very true. I think you underestimate too how encouraging kids are and how they can totally put some of your own problems mm-hmm. into perspective. I remember this is this is a funny story. It just made me think of um, back from high school. But I remember that there was a a girl in my high school. And she came from a pretty large family, so she was one of the older kids. And she had a younger brother, like seven years old or something. And she was running for 
like student council president. And she's like, yeah, I remember I was sitting at dinner and I told my brother, I'm so nervous. You know, I'm running for president and I don't know if I'm going to get elected. I really want to, but I'm very nervous. And she said, and my brother last night said, you're a resident running for president of the United States. Oh, <laughs> and, she, and she's like, no, just of my school. And he goes, oh, Jenny, you can do that. Like, he was like, that's no big deal. So she was like, and she made that part of her speech and I'll never forget it. But I think it's, again, like just this value that children have to put in perspective, like, oh, come on, it's just a school, no big deal. But it could be really helpful because I think that's totally true. I can be stressed mm -hmm. about stuff and your kids will just kind of remind you of what's important. Well, and um, I think that this goes back to the story. This whole thing goes back to the story with your husband, but just like the way your children view you. It, it, I guess it, this is how family dinners go both ways. It's not about the little people and, you know, parents are just trying to invest in the little people. It's the little people investing in the parents or the grandparents or whoever your family is, whoever is around your table. And you start to see yourself through someone else's eyes. And I think that that's probably a benefit that is maybe underestimated. Like but that little, you know, that little brother is saying like, you're, you're running for president of the United States. Like he probably thought she could do that too. Uh -huh. um, because his opinion of her is so great. Um, mm -hmm. My daughter tends to think I can fix everything, <laughs> everything, things that cannot be broken or cannot be fixed, that I, I, that I can fix them. And it's fun in some ways to just feel like a superhero to someone. And I think that how does that not build confidence in every person around that table when mm -hmm. that's the kind of conversation and kind of just perspective you're getting? by looking somebody else in the eyes and just feeling the way they feel about you <laughs> from them. Totally. Totally. That reminds me too. I have a good friend and this one always makes me a little bit emotional, but I think as a parent with younger kids, she says, I always remind myself I'll never be as loved as I am right now. And she's like, and that gets me through a lot of hard parents. She's like, you know, I have my parents love me. I have a spouse. And I have these kids and they're never going to love me as much as they do right now. Um, and so I think it's like, you know, it's a good reminder when, because it can be really hard. And then you go, but you know what, this is probably, this is probably the biggest love time I'll ever have in my life, but I need to try to soak it in. Okay. So I hope that everybody's convinced that they want to have more family dinners, right? So, Me too. Yeah. So can you give us some of your tips for implementing this if you're a family who's like low on the family dinner scale, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. So I I always say, you know, one is better than none and more is always better. So it's all about uh, just meeting yourself where you are right now. So if you are a family that does not do any family meal, first of all, People think I think that's just not us. And I like to say it can be anyone. So family meals are all about just being who you are. This is us right now. And all of it's okay. Um, so again, like I said, you know, if it seems like this is, don't try to say like, this is what we do now to a family that hasn't been doing, you know, mm -hmm. they're going to rebel and you're going to have a hard time. So maybe just start with one, even if it's a special occasion. Say, okay, fine. We're going to have family dinner for so-and-so's birthday. That's a great starting point. Some sort of special occasion. Um, you know, if that's great, then maybe you start with once a week. Say, all right, we have crazy busy schedules. This is really hard, but Sunday evening, most of the time we're home. Perfect. 
you know, like I said, one is better than none. And then you just build from there. I think the key again is, is to make sure that you're focusing on the family versus the food. So I also say, if you're just starting this, just eat what you eat now, just eat it together. If you get takeout every night, that's fine. Just sit down and eat the takeout together, you know, mm-hmm. no phone sit and, and just start there. Then, you know, if down the line, your goals are to say, I'd like to eat for takeout. Well, then fine. And then you say, oh, no, on Mondays, you know, whatever. I make sandwiches. Just keep it simple. Make it achievable. And then I think that's the other thing. Is it's like those little wins. Once you have those little wins, you're like, oh, I can do this. And then, you know, with our takeout, I can also make a salad or whatever. So it's all just about meeting yourself where you're at and making one tiny little incremental improvement from there. That's great. Do you think that there's a difference in your experience? Was Is there a difference between different age groups of like implementing this or is it or is this like the foundational stepping stone to start with is to just start where you're at and start small? You mean in terms of how old like your kids are? Yeah, or? like a, like toddlers versus teenagers. Like, is there a difference in getting everybody together? Well, I mean, obviously you have a little bit more control over toddlers, I feel like, than teenagers. However, I 100% believe that the benefits span the whole lifespan. And mm-hmm. so like to say, you know, my kid is 16, 17 years old, it's too late. No. And these are so important for teenagers. And even though they may fight you on it, I, you know, I think that kids like that structure. They like that togetherness. They like that sense of attachment, even if it doesn't always seem like it. So of course I say the earlier, the better, but I also totally believe like with my grandma at 99, it is never too late to see those benefits. And so I think that it doesn't matter the age, uh, you know, again, it's just sort of starting where and older kids tend to be busier. So I think that as kids get more and more activities, it does get a little bit more challenging. But, um, you know, I think that the benefits are, are it's worth it literally at any age. Yeah. I expect that for anybody who starts to implement these things, as soon as they start to see benefits are always motivating or like actual results are motivating to people. So as they start seeing these positive changes happen from these little steps they're taking, I think it'll become easier. I, another, a couple of things that you said in um, your book, you talked about like not stressing about the food and you just talked about that with takeout. But I loved that. Like you even, one of your example was that you guys got pizza and pop and went to the park and you're like, it, it is what it is. Like, this is what we did. And you probably, yeah, everybody loved it. If <laughs> And maybe for your teenagers, it was a more motivating get together because it was things that they really wanted or whatever. But another thing you said is that it doesn't have to just be dinner. It could be like a breakfast here or a lunch there. Um, And again, these are just such tangible and easy things to try to implement. And then once those benefits start to happen in people's families, I think that it just, even for teenagers, they're going to be like, oh, that was kind of fun. (laughs) And I don't know why they liked it, but they'll come back. Well, and I think that that's the key, too, is that in order to really see a lot of those benefits and to make it something that you'll sustain, it has to be enjoyable, at least pleasant. And I think that's where I see, too, is to make it about the family and not the food, because I think especially as a parent, there's a part of you and I always say it's like your caveman brain that's like really worried about what your kid is eating. Like, are they eating enough? Are they eating too much? Are they eating the right thing? 
And I know that comes from a good place, but I think it makes us as parents engage in behaviors that tend to make the mealtime unpleasant for us and for the kids. And that's where I see this, you know, enjoying your food and your kids is that you have to just stop stressing out about how much your kid is eating of what, you know, we see this like crying at the dinner table till you eat two more bites of broccoli. And that's not where you're going to see people wanting to come to dinner. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, we all want to feel important and valued. And to me, it seems like particularly as a teenager, I can just think back to being a teenager teenager, and like rolling my eyes at so many things that like my mom wanted to do or my family wanted to do. And so to me, it seems like even if that's the attitude of your teenager, there's an element that if you're focusing your mealtimes on like everybody at this table feels valued and everybody feels important, even if they roll their eyes every time at the dinner table, like you're giving them something internally that they'll be able to, you know, take for the rest of their life and help them feel good about themselves and stuff. So I personally think that's really important if you're feeling like, I don't know, my 16-year-old's just going to roll their eyes every time they come to the table. And that may be true. Um, And I think that that's just exactly it. So it just becomes about hanging out. Yeah. Really. You know what I mean? So what can you do? What do they like to talk about? You know, I think as a parent, that's what it is. It, It might not be the most engaging conversation you ever had. And sometimes with teenagers, you're exactly right. We all were teenagers and you look back and you're like, I was probably kind of difficult to talk to. <laughs> but, you know, like that's where I think it's just figuring out, well, what are the things that they're interested in? You know, mm-hmm. what happened? And some, and that's the other thing too. And I don't know, especially sometimes with boys, it can be difficult. You know, how was your day? And they're fine. Good. You know, how are your friends? Good. So, you know, it's about just figuring out, well, what's the topic that maybe they'll really get going on Mm -hmm. and I think that's fun I feel like the same is true for someone who's 99 yeah like what is a 17 year old and a 99 year old going to talk about where they find common ground it's like but I mean I'm there are things I know there are things I'm coming up with them Mm -hmm. in my mind right now but the 17 year old might not know the answer to that Um, and so for both parties like kind of everyone coming to the table with that mentality um I think it's really important and I think that's something that grows as people get older and change because, you know, two year old is not going to have the cognitive space to be like, I need to talk to my mom about what she wants to talk about so I can connect with her. But, you know, you know, for everybody who's coming to the table, I think it's important to um, kind of have that mindset of like, how could what can where's our common ground here? Um, mm-hmm. And for your grandmother to tell stories about her childhood, I think that is so special and so unique for your kids. I'm, I'm, I know I'm going back to that a little bit, but. But that kind of like that's common ground. They didn't know that. And she would love to tell it. And so that was kind of how they got to that point of like having these awesome conversations, I'm sure. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, they laughed that or we all really laugh. You know, she she went from, like I said, riding, you know, a horse to school to, you know, she had a Facebook page and that's all in one lifetime. (laughs) Like, it's just, you know, I think that for all even for me, like I'm like, I guess I knew that. But you're blowing my mind right now. Like, what's going on? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we have certainly uh, talked about them sitting together as a family and eating family dinners together. Um, But I would love to give you an opportunity to kind of give people an overview of the rest of the book um, and what they might like maybe where like someone's pain points might be and where they could find help in your book. I think that might Mm -hmm. be really valuable for people listening. Yeah. So, of course, you know, I focus a lot on the family meals, but then also a lot of it is just about the strategies that come with making them actually happen 
And then again, making them pleasant experiences. And so I know, you know, one of the big things we talk about is uh, knowing what's developmentally normal for your child, because I think that, again, uh, I myself experienced it. And certainly as a pediatrician, people always had questions and concerns. And I like to remind people that, you know, that can't, that's coming from a good, very caring place. But you have to think about how you're reacting. And also, it's important to know, like, some of these things that even though they're a little bit challenging to experience as a parent are very developmentally normal for your child. So a good example of that is where we see kids kind of getting into the toddler years and they'll come. Parents will often be like, oh, you know, he used to eat everything. He used to, you know, I puree all these fresh vegetables or, I, you know, he'd eat everything. And now he's very, very picky and he doesn't want to eat anything. It's actually quite developmentally normal for a child to go through what we would call a picky phase. But what I like to remind people is you have to think about, again, you have to think about like humans way back when. And so you had a baby that couldn't get around on its own. It's safe for it to eat every single thing you give it, right? But then you start to get little cave baby running around and he can get away on its own. It isn't safe for him to eat every single thing that he finds. So it's very normal that the brain would be wired in such a way to say right now, I'm going to be very suspicious of things that look and smell and taste funny to me, right? That's new. I'm not sure if it's safe to eat. It's frustrating because you're like, what are you talking about? This is, you know, I'm telling you it's safe, eat it. But when you think about, okay, this is actually just a human brain doing things that are, are healthy and safe for it. Um, it helps, I think. And then, then, then it's much easier to think, okay, this is normal. What I need to do is focus on what we call exposures, saying, you know, this is, I see it several times. I see people eating it and not dying. You know, the, the brain learns those things over time and it becomes much more likely that they'll try them and eat them and enjoy them. Um, now everybody's a little bit different. So some kids that might be two exposures, some kids that might be 200. Um, and again, just also you start to see, you know, your toddler and your baby just ate, mate, mate, mate. Then you get into these sort of school years. And, I, and I've had people say, you know, I feel like my kid exists on air. He doesn't eat anything. And so a lot of it just has to do with, you know, that growth trajectory really starts to slow down. When you think about the growth in the first couple of years, it's super fast. And then we see this really slowing down until you start to get to those adolescent years. Um, and there again, you know, you can see, I mean, maybe you guys remember too, but teenagers and adolescents, they can put away a lot of food sometimes. And again, that might be something, you know, depending on parents' concerns that can be very alarming. And so it's knowing what's normal, making sure that you're checking in with your child's doctor too, to make sure are they growing and developing normally? You know, is there an actual medical problem I need to worry about? Um, and then thinking a lot about like, but what is my response? doing in the long run and a lot of times the best response is like very little if any intervention at all uh but that's hard to know uh, and it's really like you know you want to get your kid to eat the way you want them to eat but the strategies that we use are often very short-sighted and so it's easy to think well what does this translate to in the long run an example might be you say you know i feel like my kid doesn't eat enough so if I get them, you know, if I set up the iPad and they watch the movie, I can usually shovel a few more bites into their mouth because they're distracted. 
And then you at the same time might be saying like, oh my gosh, I sat here and I ate this whole pint of ice cream, not even realizing it while I watched this Netflix special. Well, you know, we kind of are setting ourselves up. You know, you can kind of see how those were the same thing. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, well, I don't really want that for my child. So I need to think about the long term. You know, what am I teaching them to do? And if it to ignore their own internal cues, um, it's probably not the best strategy for them in the long run. I liked one of the quotes that you provided from Ellen Satter, which is parents provide kids decide. I think we've mm-hmm. talked we talked about that a little bit on the podcast last year with a woman named Katie Kimball, but just basically being giving your kids all of the options and like they're gonna decide the things that they think, you know, taste the best or feel the best or you know, whatever it is for their current situation. And um, you're still giving them the exposure by having it on their plate, even if they don't eat it the first 10 times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I love Ellen Satter. So she's like a child feeding guru. She's a genius. And yeah, so this idea of what she calls the division of responsibility. And so that has to do with sort of parents have jobs in feeding and kids have jobs in feeding. And you kind of have to stay in your own lane. And so the parent's job is I get to decide, you know, what's what's for the meal, when we're going to eat and where we're going to eat. And the kid gets to decide how much they're going to eat of what is offered and or if if they're going to eat any of it. And so that's again, though, it it sounds simple. And then in real life, it actually gets complicated because it kind of contradicts sometimes what you feel like saying or doing. But really, if you can stay in your lanes, you eliminate those mealtime battles because the battles are generally, you know, the kid, either the kid wins and you make them whatever they want to eat whenever they want to eat it or the parent wins and they, you know, force the kid to eat more or something they don't want to eat. But again, we've talked about in the long run, you didn't really probably accomplish what you would hope to accomplish. I feel like I've heard this with that analogy with sleep. Like I can provide Mm. a place for them to sleep, but I cannot force them to go to sleep. And I think that that's a little bit easier to like uh, come to terms with as a parent because sleep, like you literally can't force your child to go to sleep. Like no one can force me to go to sleep. And so I think using that same thought process with eating is really uh, helpful because I do think that the sleep thing is a little bit more well-known or widely spread like Mm. I can provide for them all of these things but I can't make them actually fall asleep and so kind of applying that same mentality to food I think is really helpful I like that I like that because I was never well I always said too I wasn't like the pediatrician for everyone because I was never like a sleep trainer type person because I kind of felt the same way you know like they're gonna sleep when they're gonna sleep and you know I can set a bedtime and a rule that you need to be in your bed at x time but like you said i can't control that doesn't mean you're getting 89 hours of sleep just because you're there one other thing that i wanted to bring up before we i don't want to take up too much of your time so before we close up but um you talked a lot about your story uh in the book and i think that it's made me think since reading that it's made me think a lot about my journey with food and not trying to force like things that I believe or things that I think or or struggles that I have on to my to my daughter's eating. Uh, mm-hmm. My example is that since I read your book, I uh, my daughter said she wanted a cookie and and she was it was a, oh, like a treat for her that day that she got for doing something. And we don't always reward with treats, but this day it was that. <laughs> and so I was like, OK. And so she goes to the cabinet 
and she pulled out a bag of dates. And I was thinking, like, that's not a cookie. <laughs> and I almost was like, you're not going to like that. I almost said that to her. And instead, I stopped and I said, sure, if that's what you want as your cookie, you can have that. And she pulled one out and she ate half of it. And then she never asked for another cookie. I mean, she didn't even eat the whole thing. And I mean, dates are incredibly sweet, but she didn't eat, you know, she didn't even eat all of it. But she never asked me for her real cookie, you know, uh-huh. ever. And but it gave me pause to think, you're probably not going to like that and like put that on her. And then, then she believes uh-huh. that. Oh, well, I don't really like those. I gave her the opportunity to decide for herself if she likes it or not. And that's totally a win because I read your book, because that was in my brain of like, I'm not going to put that on her. I'm not going to tell her that this food is not good or that she won't like it um, because she can kind of decide that for herself. And that the same could be applied to like beets or broccoli or whatever Uh people are eating that a toddler may or may not enjoy and kind of holding myself back from like holding her back, I guess. Um, So I really and I've benefited a lot from that. I'm so glad that makes me so happy. No, I think that that's true too. And it's one of the more exhausting things, I think, because, you know, the truth is a lot of the things we do and a lot of the, you know, again, come in love, but like sort of misdirected things that we do as parents, a lot of it comes from, it stems from our own anxieties, Mm -hmm. our own experiences, and maybe our own issues with food, eating, body image, and all of those things. And so I find that always exhausting as a parent because you're like, oh, I just want to do good for my kid. I don't want to fix myself. But the truth is that in the long run, honestly, I think that the experience is the more I learn and the more you realize, like, I need to be good to myself in order to be good to my kids. You know, it it makes you more conscious of your own um, inherent biases and sort of your own anxieties. And I really feel like, you know, through this experience, I myself developed better relationship with food and my body and eating all of those things, not only because you learn it and you realize you want that for your kids and you think, well, I kind of want that for myself. And as a bonus, the better I get at it myself, the better I'll do for them. So I think that's kind of where it does come full circle, where everyone sort of benefits from these practices even though I'm the first one to say at the beginning, it's like, oh my gosh, can I just do good for my kid? And then like, whatever, you know, like, can I just like eat a cheeseburger in the back? I don't want to do this. (laughs) Okay. Well, Kristen, why don't you tell everybody where they can connect with you online? Remind us the title of your book and we will close out our podcast. You bet. So uh, you can connect with me online at kristensixena.com. Also, to check out our podcast, which is uh, Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, that's available pretty much anywhere that you would get your uh, podcast. And then the book is titled The Happier Meal, How to Enjoy Your Food and Your Kid. And you can get that when it's out this spring on Amazon. Probably the easiest. Excellent. For that. Awesome. Well, we like to end our podcast talking about a recipe. So if you have um, a recipe or a meal that you've eaten recently, whether you made it or you got takeout or whatever that you really loved and enjoyed, we would love to hear about that. Well, I I would say that probably my favorite thing that I've been eating recently has been a chili because it's like one of my favorite things to eat. That's one of the recipes I've sort of modified it over time, but it is something like it's pretty close to the same like chili that my mom made when I was growing up 
So it has a little bit of that like nostalgic uh, quality to it. And then I think now with the temperatures getting a little bit colder and football on, it's just to me, it's like the, the most comforting, perfect food that you can eat. It's so funny. I, uh, I've said this before on the podcast, but nothing tastes better than nostalgia. <laughs> like nothing tastes better than stuff does in your mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. We super enjoyed this conversation and cannot wait for people to get your book in their hands. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being here. Thanks for joining us for today's interview. Dr. Kristen's book will be out in summer of 2023. And when we have a link to her book, we'll add it to the show notes and share it on social media so that you can connect with Kristen and buy her book. And thanks again for listening to the Plain Tea Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>